0: Chapter 6 is where we are today. Let's go in that spirit of where the worship team just led us to in the presence of God. The invitation of the Holy Spirit to be here among us. Mark chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you today, please turn there. We're going to be reading, starting with the second half of verse 6. And we'll read through verse 13 here just to begin. But in this passage, we begin to see Jesus' plan for evangelism. We begin to see how our Lord started to build his church out. And I think this is uh, the first time that we'll see this. We will certainly, as we continue to work through Mark's gospel, be returning to this idea at different points. But very important for our church life and our practice here at Fellowship, these verses. Second half of verse 6, Mark 6. And he went about among the villages teaching, and he called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two t- tunics. And he said to them, Father, I pray, Lord, that we, as we come to this text today, that you would help us to understand it. But more than just understand it, Jesus, we need to allow it to change our thinking. We need to allow it to change our behavior so that we might actually more closely follow you. Individually, as Christ followers for certain, but also as a church. And so, God, I pray that you would just be in our time together, and we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So, we saw last week in the beginning of chapter 6 that Jesus was rejected in his hometown, in his Patrida, his fatherland of Nazareth. And they were offended, right? The people of the synagogue who had watched this man grow up from being a boy to becoming a man— in this hometown, they were offended that a common builder, like many of them were, a tradesman, that he would overstep his station and that he would be so presumptuous to say and to do the type of things that he had been doing. And you'll remember at the end of that passage, Jesus in turn is, is quite astonished by their lack of faith, by their unbelief, and, and so he did very few miracles among them. Faith is the channel by which the power of God can work in our lives. And so Christ didn't do many miracles in his hometown. However, it's important to know that this does not discourage Jesus. It does not deter him from his overall mission and what he had been sent from the Father to do. Because if we look at the end of verse 6, we see again, and he went about among the villages teaching. And so he leaves Nazareth and he goes out to teach and to preach His mission is to proclaim the kingdom to all of Israel, but, and this is so important, church, he's proclaiming the kingdom to all of Israel, but not just for the benefit of Israel. Israel would not be the only nation blessed. They certainly would be, but they would not be the only nation blessed from His preaching and His proclamation of the kingdom. And this goes back to the Old Testament. This is not something that's new with Christ or with His teaching. God had promised that Israel would be a light to the Gentiles so that the ends of the earth would know salvation. It's this wonderful, wonderful verse. It's one of many in the Old Testament that speak to this, but this one, it's so clear. Isaiah 49, verse 6, Jehovah speaking through the prophet Isaiah about Israel and about the ministry that is to come through the Messiah, says this, it is too light a thing, it is too small a thing, would be another way to say it, that you, Israel, should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. And so here in the Old Testament, the proclamation is that the gospel, the good news, the proclamation of the kingdom, the message of repentance, the message of salvation wouldn't just stop in Israel, but it would go out to the entire world. Amen? And we are, I hope you're amening that because we are the recipients of that. Amen? (laughs) That's why it came to us, because it was too small of a thing. For it to just go to Israel, this message of the kingdom. And then we begin to see the master begin to put his master plan for evangelism into operation. This is very intensely practical, these verses that we're looking at today. Look at verse 7 with me. And and he called the twelve, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. You see, for some time now, I mean weeks, months, we don't know the exact timeline, but the disciples have been with Jesus. They've been with him. They've abided with him. And and the disciples were able to observe him, to watch him. They heard him teach. They witnessed the miracles. They saw him take authority over the spiritual realm and cast out demons. They saw him claim authority over nature and calm a storm. They've watched all of this now for weeks, maybe months at this point. And now Jesus is going to send them out. You see, this is the beginning of a transformation in these 12 men, where they go from being disciples only to also being apostles. Well, what's the difference between those two there's actually quite a significant difference between those two words a disciple is a learner a student someone who sits under a rabbi and learns from them it's very essential you can't skip that step you you can't jump to just being an apostle But it's very different from an apostle because an apostle is one who's been commissioned by the master and sent out in his identity and his authority. It's an emissary, someone who goes to represent the one who sent them, a sent out one, right? It's one who comes in his identity and his authority and can speak on his behalf. It's very different. And this is the beginning of that transformation among the 12. Now, why does Jesus send them out two by two? I think there are probably some very practical reasons for this. And as I looked at different commentaries this week on this passage, Bible scholars talk about things like providing support for each other, you know, as opposed to if you were to go all by yourself, because that's the natural thing to think about. Well, wait a minute, Jesus, you got 12 guys And if you send them out two by two, they can only cover half of the ground that they could have covered if you sent them out individually. Why did he not just send them out one by one? Get twice as much done, right? Cover more space and as much time. Well, there are some practical reasons. Support, fellowship, protection, accountability, right? All of these things are essential, but also Old Testament law stressed the importance of having two witnesses for any charge to be established. And this is really important for what he will say to the 12 in verse 11. And if you'd like to, you can sneak ahead a little and look at verse 11. But it's going to be very important that there's two witnesses to what happens during this time. Jesus is going to do the same thing later when he sends out the 72 disciples. And we will see that this also becomes a pattern for the early church. Throughout Acts, disciples traveled in pairs when they went out to do ministry. I I think there's something probably pretty prescriptive here for us, church. The importance of having a friend when you're doing ministry, the importance of having support, the importance of having accountability, The importance of not just always going out on your own, but doing things together in ministry. There's something that we can absolutely learn from that idea that Jesus sent the disciples out two by two. Jesus sent them out to proclaim the kingdom and to demonstrate the power of the kingdom. They were to go in his identity... And in his authority, they were to be an extension of him in both message and in deed. They were his authorized agents. They were going out in his power. They were casting out demons, and that would authenticate their message as they went out, just as it had authenticated his message. And we've seen that, how when Christ cast out demons, when he took authority over the spiritual realm, when he took authority over nature, when he took authority over illness or sickness, leprosy, a a crippled man, a man with a withered hand, we've studied these passages now, and we've seen how those miracles gave authenticity to the message that he was speaking. And it would be the same for them. And then notice, look at verse 8 with me. Jesus prescribes what they are to take. And I think this gets very practical, very interesting here. But in verse eight, verses 8 and 9, Mark records for us that he charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on two tunics. Now, we'll come back to these ideas when we get to application here in a minute. But for these men, the point is this. They are to travel light. They are to leave everything that is burdensome behind. They shouldn't be weighed down by the things of the world. Okay, I hope right now that maybe some light bulbs are going off on application points. Go like this if you're with me today, okay? That maybe some of you are already guessing what some application of this passage could be. And I should have said this in the beginning, but if you have a bulletin, there's a sermon note sheet on there, and all of the main points are there, and it would be really helpful if you looked at it. All right, But hopefully there's some application points that are going off here. But, but to travel light, that's what we need to understand here because Jesus is talking to these 12 men for this circumstance, and, and he's telling them, don't be weighed down by the things of the world. But notice what he says, they're to take no provisions, no food. What? We're, we're not talking about, hey, going to church on a Wednesday night and doing a wanna, right, where they could eat dinner before they go and, well, if you're like me on a Wednesday night, you get home and you have a little snack (laughs) because dinner has worn off and there's a rumbly in the tumbly, as Pooh Bear would say, but anyway, right, so that's not what we're talking about here. They're going on a trip, on a mission. They were going to be gone. We don't know how long, but days, maybe weeks, we don't know, and Jesus says, don't take any food with you, and... Don't take any money to buy food. How many of you know this probably really hit Judas in the gut? <laughs> no money? Matthew might have been going, no money? Really? You know, if you watch The Chosen, no, no money? You know? No money? Are you kidding me? No money? To buy food? They, they, they should be, here's the point, they should be fully dependent on God to supply their needs Through the hospitality of other people, they should be fully dependent on the Lord to provide for their needs through the hospitality of other people. Don't have any reserves. Don't bring anything with you guys. Don't bring any food. Don't bring any money to buy food. Here's what part of what this mission is for so that you can practice being dependent on the Father, because guess what, men? You're going to have a lot more opportunity down the road to do so, (laughs) and you need to start practicing it now. And then look at verse 10, because he gives them very clear description on what this should look like throughout their journey. And he said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. Well, this is where we need to talk a little bit about Middle Eastern hospitality. Hospitality in the Middle East was, and still is, among the highest of values or virtues culturally. Kaylee, who is my oldest daughter, um, many of you have met her. Uh, She spent quite a bit of time in Israel. She's a world traveler. She's in Seoul, Korea now, uh, but she spent time in Israel a couple of years ago when she was traveling throughout the world, and, and I was thinking about this message about two weeks ago, knowing I was coming up to this, and so I texted her, and I said, Kay, I, I want you to fact check some things. I want to make sure I have your story right, and so is anything that I'm going to say in this message, and I sent her that part of my notes, and I said, is anything not true, and And she wrote back and affirmed everything. But when she was there, when she was in Israel, she had spent several weeks there. She visited a friend's home in Palestine, in Bethlehem. I don't know if you know this. Bethlehem is not far from Jerusalem. And the border between Israel and Palestine runs right between these two communities. Jerusalem is in Israel. Bethlehem is in Palestine. She went to go visit a friend that she had made when she was a student at Saginaw Valley State University. He was an exchange student. His family grew up in Bethlehem, still lives in Bethlehem. His family had sent him to Saginaw Valley State for his education, and he and my daughter became friends. And she went to go visit him. She was traveling. Kaylee was traveling with a female friend of hers, on this, on this part of her journey. And, and the way I'm going to say this, and then I'll let Kaylee talk here and what she texted me, but is that as Kaylee's dad, I owe a debt to a Muslim family in Bethlehem that I've never met for the incredible hospitality that they showed my daughter. This is how my daughter put it when I asked her, give me the details here. She wrote back and said about this family, she she said the the craziest thing to me, though, was that the parents gave up their bed and bedroom for us. My, My friend and I weren't planning on staying, but it was getting late and we weren't sure we could make it back to Israel and cross the border in time. So Mahmoud, her friend from Bethlehem, called his mom, told him we were staying over And by the time we got there, his mom had food ready. I didn't realize that we were sleeping in his parents' bedroom until the next morning when I saw Mahmood and his whole family sleeping on the living room floor. That's hospitality. I I wish that the news coverage coming out of the Middle East would cover more stories like that one. I wish that was more of what we heard about. You know, headline, Palestinian family shows hospitality to U.S. citizen. It would be a little easier for us to think more lovingly towards people if we heard more of those types of stories. Bible scholars contend that it was the same at the time of Jesus, that this type of hospitality, it goes back to biblical times. And, and Jesus gives them clear instruction for how they are to receive hospitality from others. He instructs them to stay in the same home, according to this verse, for the entire time that they're in that city or village. Now, why does he give them this instruction? What's the point? Why was it so important to Jesus to, that the 12 guys didn't go from home to home to home in one community? Why is he giving them this instruction? It seems that Jesus did not want them moving up the social ladder. This is pretty important. It's pretty important for us today on how we do ministry. He didn't want the disciples accepting better accommodations from wealthier people after they had already been taken in by someone. Dr. R.C. Sproul talks about this in his commentary on Mark. I'll let him say it. He said, but once they... Had entered the poor man's home, they were not to leave. Not even, not even if a wealthy man later invited them to move into his home. In other words, they were not to op- they were not to be open to better offers at the risk of offending a humble homeowner. And then Dr. Sproul goes on in his commentary to talk about how that applies to us today in ministry. So again, another quick point of application here. But Dr. Sproul writes, "I see this." kind of thing in ministry all of the time. A small church invites a preacher to speak. He accepts the invitation. He puts it on his calendar. But when the organizers of a big national event come along, promising an audience of thousands and a large honorarium, most preachers in that situation ask the small church to reschedule. That's quite an indictment on my profession, But Dr. Sproul doesn't let some of the rest of you off the hook here. (laughs) He next says, tradesmen also do this. They promise to be at your home for a small repair job at a specific time, but they don't show up. Why? They landed a bigger, more lucrative job. Jesus gave us the bottom line. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. For whatever is more than these is from the evil one. So what is Jesus doing here for his disciples? I believe that Jesus is guarding their hearts. He's guarding their hearts, and he's helping them to stay focused on what is truly important, that showing this kind of favoritism towards the wealthy, if they were to accept a better invitation after they had already received hospitality from someone in a community, that showing this kind of favoritism could produce jealousy and disunity among those hearing their message, as well as creating a culture of greed and pride among the disciples themselves. However, there would be also times as the men traveled to proclaim the message of the kingdom where this would not be an issue whatsoever. (laughs) There There would be times for the guys that they wouldn't have to worry about, which invitation do I accept? And that's what Christ teaches them next. We see this in verse 11, because some communities weren't going to be interested at all. Some communities that they would come to would not be interested in them or in their message. Look at verse 11. And if any place will not receive you, what's he saying? He's saying, if people don't like what they're hearing to the degree that they go against the extreme cultural standard, the highest virtue of the day of providing hospitality. If that's their attitude, then here's what you should do. Because it would have been countercultural for that community to do that. And he said, in this situation, here's what I want you to do. When you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So I think Jesus is preparing them here that there would be times where no one would practice hospitality. They didn't want the disciples to be there. They didn't want to listen to their message. Again, maybe some light bulbs are going off with potential current application here. And when this is the case, he tells them, "'Shake the dust from your feet as you leave that community.'" this was a rabbinic tradition. This wasn't an idea that Christ, well, he did come up with it because he wrote the Old Testament too, right? But he's using something here that had become common Jewish practice, and he's appropriating an idea from Judaism of shaking the dust off of your garments when you left a foreign land and you came back to the promised land, when you crossed the border back into Israel, it would be common to shake off the dust from all those other nations that you had been traveling in. Jesus is saying something here to them. The gesture of shaking the dust from your feet certainly indicates and involves disassociation. If they won't listen to you, men, if they don't want you in their community, and if they go against the extreme cultural standard, the virtue of the day of offering hospitality to a stranger, then you need to disassociate with them. Well, having heard these instructions, his disciples are obedient. And that's what we see next in verses 12 through 13. So they went out, the disciples went out, and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. Don't miss the three facets of their ministry that Mark tells us about here. The three things that they're involved in doing. Preaching, exorcism, casting out evil spirits, and healing. You are to feed them the word, the words that I have spoken, the message of the kingdom, the message of repentance. You are to proclaim that to them. You are to take authority over the spiritual realm because you're coming in my identity and my authority. And you are to care for the spiritual needs of people. And you are also to care for the physical needs of people, healing them. We're going to see this more soon when we talk about the feeding of the 5,000. It's coming very soon in Mark's gospel. So that's their mission. That's what they go out with. Now let's just for a moment focus in on that message. They are to preach a message of repentance. Let me remind you what repentance is. Repentance is when... God gives you the grace. I know my reform theology is showing right now. I make no apologies. God gives you the grace to see your sin for what it is and you are filled with sorrow over it. That's repentance. God gives you the grace to see clearly what your sin is that it is an offense to a living, holy God. And you're filled with sorrow because of that. I, I think that is how we should understand the Beatitudes. Blessed are you when you are poor in spirit. Blessed are you when you understand your spiritual bankruptcy before God, that you bring absolutely nothing to this equation, that you have no righteousness whatsoever to bargain with, You understand that. And then the second beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, right? That understanding, that clear thinking about your sin drives you to be sorrowful over it. You understand the state that you're in. The Apostle Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. He says, for godly grief produces a repentance, Understanding my sin, seeing my sin, drives me to be sorrowful, I realize that I have no hope. I am completely hopeless. I see that for what it is, and that drives me to repent. That leads to salvation, Paul writes, without regret. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death repentance is when you change your mind about your sin. That's what the Greek word metanoia that we translate into the English word repentance means. You change your mind about your sin. As we love Jesus more fully, we hate our sin more deeply. As we grow in our love for Christ, we see our sin for what it is and we hate it more and more. It causes us to turn away from our sin and turn to the Lord. And the disciples preached repentance, and they performed the miracles that Jesus had been performing. Mark tells us that their presence, if you look at those verses again, their presence brought healing because of who they represented. They didn't have the power to heal in themselves. They had the power to heal because they came in the identity and the authority of Jesus Christ. They came in the authority of the king. Now, let's apply. I'm running out of time here. So let's, let me give you just a few points of application on these verses. Is there anything here for us as we seek to fulfill the great commission of the Lord? I, I absolutely think so. I absolutely think there's some important principles here. But it is important for me to say that Jesus is giving clear instructions to 12 men for a specific journey. We need to see that. the text, We need to understand that Jesus is telling his disciples, here's what I want you to do as you go into the culture that you're going into, right? And, And so what are you trying to say, Pastor Terry? Here's what I'm trying to say. I don't think we should walk away from our study in these verses and think things like, okay, when I tell someone about Jesus, I need to bring a staff with me. If you're sharing Christ at your place of work and you work in an office setting, that may create an additional barrier to the gospel if you've got a staff in hand, right? I don't, I don't think that's what we need to pull out of this, right? I, I need to bring a staff. I can't bring my lunch bag anymore. Can't do that. Can't have any money in my pockets when I'm sharing my faith. I think that would, those would be inappropriate applications of the text, if I could say it that way. Oh, and by the way, I should be wearing sandals too, not choose. Yeah, no. But let's not miss some very important principles here that probably do apply to us. There, there are four that I see, so I present them to you as, for your consideration. Principle number one, go, go as you are. Go as you are. What do I mean by that? No PhD required. No seminary training required. Nothing required to go share your faith. Go on mission Go as you are. Don't wait until you attend one more Bible study or get one more training or one more thing of that nature. Jesus used ordinary people like you and me. Now, is there anything wrong with Bible studies? Absolutely not. Is there anything wrong with more evangelism training? Or absolutely not. Certainly, I would encourage those things. But don't wait, because some of us fall into that habit. Well, I just or that way of thinking. I don't know if I could answer everybody's questions. I don't know. If Just love, love, pray, and share the basic gospel truths. That's something that you can, all of us can do. Jesus used ordinary people like you and me. He sends out the 12 in this passage fishermen, a tax collector, a zealot, a zealot who had been trained to fight. And now Jesus wants him to go out and to be the recipient of hospitality and to share a message, right? Go as you are. None of these guys were rabbis. They were ordinary people who were following Christ. Just a couple of passages on that point. First of all, let me go back there. First Corinthians chapter 1, verses 27 through 29. This is what Paul writes. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. I love this passage because what it tells me is that God can use foolish, weak, low me for his benefit. Amen? What a wonderful promise in Scripture. We don't have to be something. We don't have to be all that. We can go as we are and be used by God. Dr. Mark Strauss writes about this, and he says, Jesus uses even the most flawed instruments to accomplish his purposes. The disciples will become a powerful force to change the world. These men, 11 of them anyway, are going to literally change the known world around them. Dr. Strauss writes, they will become a powerful force to change the world because they are not acting in their own authority, but in the power and authority of Jesus and the kingdom of God. This has an important application for us today. Though the church today is far from perfect, as heirs of the commission given to the disciples, we are jars of clay who have been filled with treasure to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. Amen, church? Go as you are. Don't wait any longer. I think that's an important principle from these verses. Another one, go as you are is number one. The second one is travel light. Stuff can easily be a distraction. Now, here's where I just need to let the Holy Spirit I pray that the Holy Spirit just works in all of our hearts. Mine, too, to convict us in, in what this means in, for us in our own lives. But stuff can easily become a distraction. Don't be consumed by it. The temptation, isn't it, is to always be acquiring more. Things that keep our attention, that keep our focus here on this world, and distract us from the mission, And and listen, when we fall into that, it weighs us down. You you know what I'm saying is the truth. The things of this world, when we focus on them and we're, we're always trying to get a little bit more and we're always trying to acquire more, it weighs us down and it keeps us from the mission. And Scripture warns us against this, and I'm going to share these passages with you. And I pray that we all would be willing to listen to God's word and let it transform us. The one you see on the screen we covered this weeks ago in Mark chapter 4, but Jesus said, But the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. Jesus is going to say in Luke chapter 16, No servant can... Serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. And here's the application for Christ of why he says that you cannot serve God and money. And then Paul is going to write to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and he says, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith, and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul's saying, Timothy, look, this this love for money, do you want to know how destructive it is to our souls? Do you want to know how much it damages us when we can't get a handle on this and we always want more and we always want more? People have left the faith because of this. People have walked away because of their love of money. The author of Hebrews says very clearly, keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The promise of Christ. Is Jesus enough for us? Is he enough for us? Maybe we we need to really, and I don't, you know, no altar call this morning, right? I, I think this is one of those things that we need to meditate on, we need to think about, we need to pray about. And we need to ask the Holy Spirit to root out any evil that's in our hearts regarding the love of money and stuff. But my challenge is to do that, to think about that. The idea of maybe even moving toward a simpler lifestyle and leaving the stuff behind. Well, go as you are, number one, travel light. And then the third is trust trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord and not in yourself. Paul wrote to the Philippians. I'll just give you this one verse. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. If you're like me, maybe you are. I hope for your sake, maybe not completely. (laughs) But if you're like me, you kind of know what you can do. You kind of know what you can do in your own strength, what you can accomplish and what you can't accomplish. Like like after, you know, I don't know, 30 years in the working world, and the ministry world, right? I got a pretty good idea of what I can accomplish. And let's say it's about like right here. This is how effective I can be. This is how much I can do for the kingdom, right? But what am I talking about right now? I'm talking about what I can do in my natural strength. I, I figure I have maybe, I don't know, church, I'm not limiting God, but 15 more years of full-time life ministry work ahead of me. What I'm saying is for the next 15 years, I don't want to be stuck right here. I want to be up here. How am I going to get up here? It's not going to be me. It's not going to be me and my natural self just doing what I can do. Who is it going to be? It's going to be Christ working through me, amen? And I hope and pray that for you guys as well. Let's not be content what we can accomplish individually. Let's not even be content with what we can accomplish corporately as a church. Let's only be content with what God can do through us, what he can do through us individually and what he can do through us corporately as a church. Let's claim this promise of Philippians I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So first, go as you are. Second, travel light. Third, trust. Here's the fourth and the final one. Uh, Live in the intersection. Live in the intersection. I'm going to let Dr. Wright talk about this. I just found this quote, and I thought it said it so well. He said, there have been many times in recent years In many places around the globe, when the church's task has been, like the Twelve, to go urgently around with minimal hindrances or distractions, warning people that the world is heading rapidly in the wrong direction and doing things which show clearly that evil has been defeated through Jesus and can be defeated again today. Uh, Do you think maybe we're living in one of those times? Let's see what Dr. Wright tells us to do. Learning to hear a passage like this and to respond obediently involves learning to listen to the prophetic call of God and to the pains of the present world and to live at the point of intersection between the two. When the call comes, there's no time to lose. What's Dr. Wright saying? He's saying, look, have, have one foot, one foot. And this is what, um, oh, I just lost his name, Dr. Uh, John Stott used to always say, great preacher from England years ago. He said the call of the preacher, he was talking about pastors, but he would say the call of the pastor is to have one foot in the ancient text, one foot in the Bible, and to have one foot in the needs of his congregation, the people of his church. In other words, you, you can't you can't just... Be so focused on the text and not thinking about what's going on in the world, is what Dr. Stott was saying. And you also can't, certainly cannot leave the Bible behind and, and just preach from current events. But it's the intersection between the two. Are you following with me, church? I think that is the case for all of us as Christ followers. We need to learn to live in the intersection between the prophetic call of God, what Scripture says, what the Word of God would say to the world and the world itself, seeing the needs of people, hearing the cries of people, seeing where people truly are. And we need to get better at introducing those people to Christ. Amen? We need to get better at caring for the needs of people. If we can learn to live in that intersection... God can use us as a church in a powerful way. Would you, would you bow your heads, please, and close your eyes? Worship team, come and join me. And I just want to pray that as we end, that we would learn to do that more, that we would learn to be more effective as a church, that we would choose Jesus to live more in that intersection, It's been put this way before that sometimes we can get so caught up in our holy huddles that we never go out and play the game. But God, I pray that we would be well-discipled, Christ followers moving towards maturity, coming into gatherings like this one to worship and, and to be encouraged and to be fed and participating in Bible studies with each other and growing in our faith and learning how to follow you more closely, Christ. But I pray that we would be doing that, that we would be going up to the mountaintop so that we could then go down into the valley. Lord, I pray that we can then go out into the world and to live in that intersection, Jesus. So help us. Help us to go as we are, to not wait another day, but to follow you, Christ, into wherever you're leading us, whether that's to engage in a, a relationship, maybe a personal evangelism, friendship evangelism type relationship where we impart truth to someone else, where we share the gospel with them on the foundation of love and, and prayer. Or maybe it's to become more actively involved in our community or in an issue of the day, getting more involved, plugging in, speaking your truth into a situation, shining the light into that situation, being the salt of the earth, Lord. But help us to go. Help us, Lord, to travel light. Help us to not be caught up in the things of the world, but help us to jettison all the junk and to just be... Fully following you, Christ. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to know that we can only do so much on our own and what we can do on our own is certainly not going to last for eternity. So God, I pray, Lord, that we would put our trust in you and open that door where you would work through us, Lord. And that we would do all things through you. All things through him who strengthens us as we go out to live in these intersections. Jesus, would you be with us? I know you will because you promised us that. When you gave the Great Commission, you said to the church that you would always be with us. We thank you for that, Lord, and we pray that now we would be faithful in Christ's name.